This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And everything in between, including your story, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorite. And today we have a story from Chicken Soup for the Soul, Life Lessons from the Cat Book, which can be found on Amazon.com. This story is entitled The Cat No One Wanted, and it was read to us by Renee Vaco Search. Here's the story. I was hesitant when my niece called to ask if I would foster a pair of cats until she could find homes for them. My husband and I had already adopted several strays and felt we had reached our limit. Although we live in the country where there's plenty of room for our cats to roam, there are still quite a few costs involved in caring for pets. I found them in the hollow of a tree at the campground, my niece told me. They're both declawed. Immediately I was swayed. Most cats can't survive in the wild without claws. They need them to hunt for food and defend themselves against predators. After consulting with my husband, we agreed to keep them temporarily. When my niece showed up with two long-haired calicos, we were shocked to see how emaciated they were. At first they were both skittish, but the male cat soon realized he was in a safe place and overcame his fear. The female cat, on the other hand, dashed down the hall and disappeared into our son Benjamin's room, huddling against the far wall under his bed. My husband named the male Sam and the female Hal, an acrostic for hides a lot. Though identical in appearance, Sam and Hal's personalities were as opposite as night and day. Sam was playful, curious, and affectionate. Hal was fearful, cautious, and aloof. We placed posters on the vet's bulletin board. Within days, Sam found a wonderful home. Hal, on the other hand, wouldn't venture out from under Benjamin's bed other than to eat, drink, and use the litter box. No one wanted to adopt the sullen cat. After almost a week, Hal finally ventured out to nap on Benjamin's bed while he was at school. But as soon as my husband or I entered our son's room, she would dash back under the bed. Gradually, she began to sleep with Benjamin, curled up next to his pillow, near enough to sense his presence, but not close enough to touch. Almost two weeks after Hal arrived, Benjamin experienced a full-blown meltdown. Our son has high-functioning autism, also known as Asperger's. When his sensory issues trigger a meltdown, he goes to his room, lies on his bed, and covers himself with his favorite cat blanket to block out all sensory input. Unfortunately, it still takes a while for him to calm down. Although he'd slammed his bedroom door, we could still hear him ranting about the unfairness of life. I was about to enter his room to check on him when his tirade stopped suddenly. It was as if someone had flipped a switch. Ear pressed to the door, I heard nothing but silence. Carefully, I opened his bedroom door and peered in. Hal was lying on the bank blanket covering Benjamin. Our son's breathing was slow and regular. Spent after his meltdown, Benjamin had fallen asleep with the cat resting on his chest. 
Over the next few weeks, we witnessed the same phenomenon happen every time Benjamin spiraled into a meltdown. As soon as he lay down in bed and covered himself with his blanket, Hal would settle on his chest, and within seconds, Benjamin would transition from agitation to complete calm. My husband and I had read about weighted blankets, which often help individuals with autism to relax and calm down. Now it seemed that cat was providing the same type of effect. It soon grew quite apparent that Hal had come into our lives for a reason. The frightened, aloof cat has developed an unusual bond with Benjamin. She seems to sense his special needs and appears to have her own sensory issues to boot. She doesn't like to be touched, hates loud noises, and favors solitude over boisterous games with the other cats in our house. But none of that matters to Benjamin because he shares the same sensory issues. Benjamin and Hal are best friends. When she's not eating or taking a walk around the garden, you will find Hal napping on Benjamin's bed, curled up beside his pillow, or lying on his chest when he's feeling stressed. The cat no one wanted has blessed us beyond expectations. We gave her a home, but she has given our special son so much more. And a great job, as always, by Faith, and thanks to Renee Vaco Search for her reading of The Cat No One Wanted from the book Life Lessons from the Cat Book from the Chicken Soup for the Soul, folks, and you can find it at Amazon.com. Renee Vaco Search's story, her cat Hal's story, and her son Benjamin's story here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for a special short and recurring feature here on Our American Stories. It's time for Lindsay Marie and her Why Minute. I'm Lindsay Marie, and you're listening to The Why Minutes. You know, there's just something about cruising down the open road, windows down, music up, that just makes you feel so free. That is, until you see those red and blue lights in the rearview mirror. Your stomach sinks and your heart skips a beat. You know you're going a little fast, but you weren't being reckless. Regardless, you still end up with that $300 ticket, a not-so-gentle reminder that freedom has restrictions, even on the open road. But it's all in the name of keeping us safe, right? Well, not always. You see, back in the 70s, there was an oil shortage, and the government was looking for ways to conserve oil, but ultimately drive the price down. So, they set their eyes on our country's interstates. They limited speeds to 55 miles per hour because, as it turns out, the faster you go, the more oil you burn. The idea was that by limiting the speed, the demand for oil would be lower, ultimately making the price go down. But a lot has changed since the law was repealed in 95. Cars are designed safer, faster, and way more fuel efficient. But have you noticed what hasn't changed much with technology? The speed limit. What was once used to save us money is now used to take our money. The why minutes, because why matters.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. And we bring you stories from time to time from people across every field and walk of life, from the military to business and sports, and from leaders all around this country, big names and little names too. Today, Alex Cortez brings us the voice of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and a guy who made a wood bat for his son, and it accidentally overtook Louisville Slugger as the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball and in only a decade. Here's Jack on their football recruits. When recruits come in, we had one here yesterday from Hawaii, and we're talking, and they kind of know a little bit about what we've done as research. I said, I don't go into all this stuff. I know what we do here. We, we are very unique in the aspect that what we do with ACL injuries and how efficient we are. We're, we're, I think we are, if not the best at it. But I tell them, it's about, I said, it's not about football. I said, football's like taxes and death. It's gonna end. And it's probably, one thing that's different than those, it's gonna end early. Taxes gonna last forever and death, hopefully you live you know, a long life. But that's gonna end early. I said, don't think about football. What we like to do in our area is to help you pass football. There's where the influence can happen. We want to help you learn you as a young man and what do you want to do with your life? So, so we use our network to help you with that. Or we try to groom you. We try to teach you even about taxes. You're not going to realize when you get out of here and say if you do play, yeah, LSU has the most guys in the NFL. That, that's a fact. But if you get a chance to do that, think about half your salary gone. If you go to California, we have players that tell us all the time, it's 52%. said, you're working basically from January through July for free. That's what you're doing. (laughs) Tredavious White, who is with the Buffalo Bills, who grew up in a, you know, not a great neighborhood, left with $21,000. Legally, may I say, because he's one of the best. He wore the number 18 jersey here, which represents a model person. And then we have a kid now, Devin White, who's on our team, who's going to break his record. Wait, did Jack just say breaking LSU's record on the amount of money saved? He's already <laughs> close to 20000 It's not a record uh, most people think about. No. Football. So we, those are things we, we enjoy. But you can't. I mean, what do you? if you're smart, you can save. Could you imagine leaving as a college student with 21000 I certainly didn't, but what I really wanted to hear more about was this number 18 jersey thing that started with quarterback Matt Mock, who had that number. So Matt represented everything you want in your son, everything, leadership, good person, you know, just, he was from Indiana, from, uh, you know, an area that did woodwork. So we had a running back named Jacob Hester, he got the number, represented the same thing. So we thought it'd be a great idea carry this was 2004 probably five so Matt was our national championship quarterback then Hester was our national championship running back and uh, so he wore the 18 and thought it'd be a good idea to hand this down to someone who's come through at, at first low adversity good person so the tradition start handing down 18 every 18 now was voted by the equipment guys, the um, sports information, weight room. Everybody had a say to say, all right, this is the guy we like. This is the, this is our leader. This is the person we want to be our son. 
And obviously the head coach now has the final say. Before it was just kind of internal. Now it's become, it's in the, it's in the College Hall of Fame, the story, or the 18, what it represents. So any scout that comes here, they know, well, he wore 18, so we don't have to ask about character. So Tredavious White wore the 18 for two years because he got it when he was a junior. And um, so we're waiting to see who we got this year who's going to be nominated. And we just found out, this was a couple years ago, uh, Louisiana was the 18th state in the United States. <laughs> so, uh, which was a, a thing. And, and Shelly, who's, who's Jewish, she's one of my assistants, she's one of the first female assistants. I hired her as a female assistant in, in 1996, which none of the SEC schools had. And she goes, you know, 18 for the Jewish folks is a lucky number for us. It stands for a significant deal, the number 18. So 18 has become a huge deal at LSU now. And are guys now actually competing on character to get the number 18? Now they do. Now they do. So that is something I really like. Because I was telling Hester, I said, just think about it. Before a game, they sold number seven jersey and 18's become... You see all these little 18s running around. That wouldn't have been a number yet, but it, it, it's become a number because of what you guys have done. It's a staple number now. Typically, at a university, you say, and I think this is an advantage of ours, all right, we're gonna have treatments at six o'clock in the morning. Okay, six o'clock. So everybody rushes in, you treat them, look at them, and get them out. So when Saban was here, his staff meetings, they had meetings in the morning, but the big staff, when I had to do their injury report, was at 10. I said, all right, you guys have to be here from seven o'clock to 10. I have to see you before that. Now what that did is I always have one-on-one -on -one time and talk to them. Because I always instruct our doctors, there's an approach you go when you examine a player. We're not gonna use the word tear, we're gonna use the word sprain. And we're going to always find out the positive. If a kid tears his ACL and his cartilage is fine, we're going to say, man, yeah, you tore your ACL, but your cartilage looks great. And that's where you develop that one-on-one. -on -one. Because injuries, as mental as anything else, and we always get kids back faster. It's always safe. But there's a mental aspect that you can make them believe. And you don't want to, I never hate to give them time frames. We always say we're going to take it day to day or week to week. So we have trained our physicians to say that. I always believe I had an opportunity to multiple NFL teams. And matter of fact, there was one about a month ago. I said, I'm not going to take the job. They begged me, you know, I, I did listen to them because they kept saying, look, you can do this, this. And I, my passion was never in the NFL. I worked camps, Browns 85, Buccaneers 87. <laughs> That's when we had three days at Tampa. <laughs> I mean, that was the worst camp ever. But I, uh, so I know, and their GM, vice president, they were disappointed. And so they said, we don't know where to start. Tell us what you want in an athlete. What do you look for when you hire somebody? I said, you guys are going to overcomplicate. I said, you only need three things. I said, a good person. Good heart, compassionate, stays above board. Second thing's personality. You gotta have somebody that has a personality that can talk to people. I said the latest studies have showed people with personality have better careers than people with high IQs. It's, it's proven. And that's, I'm not saying you gotta be dumb, but they are, they are better. 
And I said, the third thing, keep an open mind. Have somebody that's open-minded. Not so open-minded, your brains will fall out, but open-minded to change and, and willing to do it. I said, that's it. And if you have that, that's what I've hired here. We don't lose people, we don't. And uh, I, I also focused on a lot of Midwest people, to be honest with you, because mm. of values. I have. I'm not saying there's, it just works for us. So I end up helping them with the search and we found somebody and I think again, people overcomplicate things. But really, it's, that's all you need. I've been approached many a times and one thing, I, and this last time, our administration is very good. They said, which I felt good about, they said, I've never come up there for money for myself. I've always come up for my assistance the whole time I've been here, never once. Our assistants are one of the higher paid. I wasn't, I was probably mid-pack, but um, one of the senior associates mentioned that to the administration, said, you know, here's a guy here that never asked for money. And again, I always believe if you do the right thing, that, that comes with it. But again, how much do you need? Get something to drive around, something decent, decent house. All right, let's go. You don't need all them rooms in a house. What are you doing with all them rooms? Status. What do you need in life? I mean, you really, you just want your kids to stay healthy and try to help others. You know, and, and that's the reason why I'm still an athlete trainer. It's nice to have the ability to influence young people because if you don't, then I think that's the void. I try to teach these guys, if they're successful in football, take care of, there's a family that you probably grew up that didn't have much, but do something for them. It'll be the most rewarding thing that you have. And what a voice. You're listening to Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports, whose wood bats accidentally overtook Louisville Slugger as the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball and all in only a decade. When we come back, more on leadership and life with Jack Marucci. This is Our American Story. We continue with Our American Stories and our On Leadership series with Jack Marucci. And Jack's the director of LSU's athletic training, and his Marucci Sports has the number one bat in Major League Baseball. Now let's return to Jack. I have a son who I start making the bats for, he plays college baseball. So I wanted to tell him how fortunate he was. And I pulled up, and they just did the new stats, the NCAA. It has the percentage of playing Division I sports. College football is only 2.6%. College baseball is 2.1%. That is it. 98% is not going to be playing collegiate sports. That's how low the odds are. Men's basketball is 1%. And I don't think people realize the odds are that low. 
So he comes back from Christmas break and goes, hey, Dad, I, I talked to our coach and we had our exit interview and he heard that I was going to go to graduate school and, you know, I kind of have a plan. And he said, so, Gino, you don't have baseball in your future and, you know, you're not really counting on it. And he goes, well, let me tell you a story. When I was in seventh grade and I told my dad I want to be a baseball player. And he goes, my dad looked at me and says, no, you're not. You're not that good. And he, he goes, my dad told me two things. He goes, you better worry about education and treating people right. And he says, my coach loved it. He goes, he, he, he about fell out of the chair. And he goes, you know, that's refreshing to hear something like that. So, you know, it, it always lends to me that, you know, babies are born the same since the I mean, 50s, 60s, you know, DNA is there. But I think parenting has changed today's society. And you see it very strong in sports. That's where it pokes its ugly head. You know, if their little son, Johnny, eight, nine years old, had a good week in baseball, the parents all happy at work. And if the kid struck out two or three times and they're down in the dumps and they're upset. So it's very conditional. And I think it's conditional love. It's conditional if they hit the ball or don't hit the ball. I mean, that's what we're at now. Uh, or did he make the goal? Or, he, you know, he made the winning basket or he missed it. So, you know, I think we are a society who's becoming a parent is becoming so enabling and protecting their kids way too much. And yes, you can be anything you want. That is true to a certain extent, but I wasn't gonna be an NBA basketball player. Yes, you can be an accountant or something, but even then, some people are limited the way they process information. It is, it's, it's facts. You know, some people, that's why you have all these different careers. You know, if everyone was good at math, we'd have everybody was an accountant. <laughs> but no, we have everybody's wired differently and that's what makes the world so unique. And that's where you have to plug everybody in. And, and I've always believed people should work on their strengths, not weaknesses. Let someone else adapt to your weakness. They have that strength. And that's how you build, I think, a good team. But my son, you know, we didn't do the travel ball. We were the anti-establishment. Maybe because we were lazy, too, as parents, we wanted to go on vacation. But, you know, we built the wiffle ball field where he learned to play. In their backyard which looked like a major league field. Now we were a little obsessive on it, but he, he, he had the ability to play college baseball. And like I told him, only 2.1% played division one baseball. Be very thankful. And I think that you don't have to do all these excessive things for your children. Let them be kids, let them figure things out, um, play in the backyard, let them compete in the neighborhood. They'll learn a lot of those traits. Yes, you have to have reps and be good at something, but I think you have to all keep it in perspective because parents become so aggressive today. It's like if you look at elbow injuries have gone up, it's not because of curveball. Oh, well, he's not throwing curveballs. Well, it's, it's the, you only have so many throws in your arm. If you're using all your throws up from eight, nine, 10 because of those tournaments, you wanna win that little ring. You know, that's what it is. Everybody's not Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, again, is, his DNA is a lot different than everybody else's. But you have had a lot of great pitchers that they never got there because they eventually blew their arm out. That's because they used it up when they were younger. And I think you have to take multi-sport kids, let it play out that way. Our best athletes here at LSU are the multi-sport kids. Football, for example, we, we haven't seen kids like a, a Dwayne Bowe didn't go out until he was a junior in high school. And he was an NFL first rounder. So don't put your kids into all these drills and stuff when they're young and feel like it's, it's become the chore. All your kids are gonna tell you the same thing. You hear it from every parent, oh, he loves it. 
He loves the travel ball. Oh, he, he can't get enough of it. Well, the parent can't get enough of it. The kid's not going to tell you that because basically he's not going to want to disappoint the parent is what it is. And you can try to enable again all these things. And that's, I think that's what we've seen more than anything. And I think that's where we've gotten away from the, the core value as a kid, because a, a child still wants to be a child. He still wants to have fun. But I think parents today have seen this competitive edge having their kids live through their kids, and especially through athletics. It's almost child abuse because of some of these injuries you see on these kids and they're pushing them. Why would you want your kid to have a Tommy John at the age of whatever, 13, 14, when it can be avoided? Let their bodies develop, let them have the ability to, again, enjoy the game. It, you know, you see baseball played all, all year round. And I use this analogy. I'll bring up the pizza analogy, and I love pizza. But eating it every day may not taste as good if you just wait every couple weeks or every week. It tastes better. It's like when we were all in school. We couldn't wait to get out at the end of the year. We loved it. As much as we hated school, we were kind of excited when school started. We did it the first couple of days because too much of a good thing is not a good thing. If you're playing baseball, they're never excited to play. I saw it in my son. When baseball season came, he was fired up. He was more fired up than everybody because everyone else playing all year round. He's ready to get in there. He can sustain that passion for the season because he's not burned out with it. It's not. It's not humdrum, it's new, it's exciting. He's ready to get back at it, because if you take something away too, it makes things better. And to close, we hear from Jack Murchie about another leader and one of the former coaches he worked for and won a championship with, Florida State's Bobby Bowden. I think Bowden did a good job because of who he was as a person. He was a very religious, you know, every Friday night, in which I don't know if you could do this today, you know, he brought in God's Word and he tied it in to the theme of if we're playing Notre Dame or we're playing Florida, and he had a story. And I think it changed, probably from osmosis, some of the kids you could see evolve from that part of it. I'll tell you one story he talked about. It was when he was at West Virginia. And he told the story about how you know, when you think things are bad and how God will turn things around when you least expect it. So there was this player that his parents were blind. Never got to see him play. Never got to see him play. His dad always wanted to see him play. You know, his dad would come to games and hear the crowd noise. And it meant a lot to the athlete. But he always wished his dad could see you know, his son play. So he says his dad got ill, got very sick. The kid was struggling that season. His dad passed away, and the kid has a breakout game. And he goes, you know, what, why'd you play so well? He goes, well, that's the first time my dad saw me play. <laughs> I mean, it's touching. Um, and, you know, just what a story. And he said, you know, that was the first time. He talked, you know, it was God's will, and, but he's in heaven, he got to see me play. And he said, that's why I played so well. I mean, just uh, sticks with you.
And you've been listening to Jack Marucci, again, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports, and just one of the great voices in college sports. And when you're running the training, the athletic training for a school like LSU, it is one heck of a big job, one of the most important jobs. And faith is a big part of Jack's life, and he doesn't scream up and down about it, but it's a big part of his life. And my goodness, the kids... I've always thought he would give up that company in a heartbeat if it was a choice between the company and working on those sidelines. Jack Marucci's story on leadership here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've all heard of gunslingers Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, and Billy the Kid. These three quick-draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler with a story. We all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy. Well, you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet. After all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I, was, I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, as I, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. There, there are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how, uh, how they used to have, like, duels and draw against each other and... Well, as I said, I mean, there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another. The movies created fastball. It never happened in real life. Really? Mm-hmm. You mean no, no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever? No. Oh, I see. Shot. So it's a fabrication of the movies. How, huh? how, did, how did Bill Hickok die? I think it was shot in the back. That's the way they all died. I've taken what, they, what the movies have created, and I've built a show around it. And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. 
nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no way you talking about. I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No, no way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. And you reach nearly 10 G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of 9 Gs. But Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw cock fire and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. No. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. I'll, yeah, I'm going to bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you've got to cock it, bang, cock it. And yep, again, right. cock it and bang. Yeah. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So. You know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her, and I can't, I, can't, I don't even want to do anything without her. After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, 
Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years. And we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon. And we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old. And uh, we put them in the back with their toys. And we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know. And then uh, we were in the front. And we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around, too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error and changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started asking me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, well, you've got some problems here. I kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. Family members and special guests Use single-action revolvers to complete the 70-shot salute, one for every year 
of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Frank DeVito was just a 19-year-old Coast Guard member and one of the first Americans to storm Omaha Beach in the Normandy region of France on June 6, 1944. This is a rare opportunity to hear firsthand an account of what happened that day. And be warned, this story might not be appropriate for young listeners or those who are sensitive to the often gruesome details of war. Listener discretion is advised. Well, we were very close in that family. I had two brothers and a sister. And we lived in a neighborhood like, like today, you know, the mall is four miles away. Get in the car and go to a mall. When we lived in Brooklyn, everything was a block away. If you wanted to go to a grocery store or, or a drugstore or anything like that, what you do is walk one block and everything was there for you. And then, of course, I went to a high school called Lafayette High School. It was a wonderful school. And I only put three and a half years in there. I, I left the high school... In my senior year, I think we were, it must have been about 16 boys. We all, we all volunteered at the same time. Each one of us took a different, either Army or Navy or Coast Guard, whatever it may be. And uh, my mom, God bless my mother, she had three sons. My brother was in the Army, and he went as far with in the Third Army, with Patton's Army. He went into Germany. And of course, I did the Atlantic and the Pacific. And my kid brother, we were so happy that he missed the Second World War. Then the Korean War came along, and he volunteered to go into the Marines. He was in the Chosen Reservoir when the Chinese hordes came over the top. And luckily, he survived. He was a BAR man. So my, my poor mother, she had three kids. Oh, combat. I don't know how she did it. My mother was a very strong person. When Pearl Harbor happened, everybody was patriotic. Everybody wanted to go into the service and do their part. And, and I, I first started enlisting at 17, but my mom wouldn't sign for me. And I wanted to get in before the war ended. I, I thought in a year the, the war would end. I didn't know it was going to last four years. So I was anxious to get in. 
and have no regrets. Uh, I met some very, very wonderful people, and I lost a lot of people. When you go into the military, what they do, they break you down. The, the first day that you're in, either the master sergeant or the chief petty officer says, I want you to forget everything that you know up till today, because from today on, you're going to be military, you're going to do it our way. And it's very ironic because today a lot of kids are committing suicide. The kids from Vietnam and Iraq and they, they, we're losing a lot of kids from suicide. And I think the reason is because when we went in the service, we did two or three weeks basic training and they taught us how to be military. And when the war ended, they gave me a piece of paper and $86 and put me on a train and sent me home. I was a lost person. We were all lost. They broke us down to, to bring us into the service, but they didn't do anything to, you know, make it easy for us coming out. They showed out like a basic training when you leave the service. That's why a lot of kids today, they come home and they're lost. The, the first time I had liberty, I remember I had liberty. I couldn't wait to go home to see my mom. I had two weeks. To, and I went there, and the first day I was very happy. I saw my mom and my brothers and sisters. The next day, my mom went to work. My, my kid brother went to school. My dad went to work. And there was nobody in my neighborhood my age because they were all in the service. And I was lost. I couldn't wait to go back to my ship. I was so happy to get liberty. And after two days, I was happy to go back. You know, a lot of people don't realize D-Day, they wrote a lot of books and a lot of movies about it. The whole D-Day was only 18 hours. We dropped the boats at 4 o'clock in the morning, and 10 o'clock at night, the beach was ours. It was only 18 hours, the whole thing. People make a big spectacle out of it, you know, D-Day, D-Day. It was 18 hours, that's all it was. But we did lose 2,000 men on the beach. I said men, I shouldn't say men. 2,000 kids. We were all kids. We were all kids. We were too young to drink. We were too young to vote. We weren't too young to die. 18 years old, 19, 20 years old, they were kids. Some of them didn't even shave, never shaved. Yeah. And, you, and you're fighting Germans that were in the war for four years. Some of them came out of Russia. They were seasoned. And with all that, the season, us 18, 20 year old kids, we whipped their ass. Sorry, I shouldn't use that language. What I remember the most. I'm going to tell you a story. I don't tell it to anybody because it's so hard for me. On the first wave, my job was to drop the ramp. And the machine guns were hitting the ramp in the front of the ramp. But I knew when I dropped the ramp, the machine gun boat was going to come into the boat. 
But I had to drop the ramp because the troops had to get out. This is the first wave. So when I dropped the ramp, the Germans had 14 machine guns, MG42 machine guns, capable of 160 rounds a minute. When I dropped the ramp, all those machine guns opened up. And the front of my boat, seven, eight, 10, 15 kids, I don't know, they just went down like, like you're cutting wheat. And you're listening to the voice of Frank DeVita. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this man's story and so many others who served in the biggest and most important war of all time. Frank DeVita's story here on Our American Stories. And we return to Our American Stories. We're listening to Frank DeVita's first-hand account of storming Omaha Beach on D-Day back in 1944 and 70-plus years later, remembering every emotional detail. When we left off, DeVita had opened the ramp on the front of his landing craft when the soldiers on board were struck with heavy machine gun fire from the Germans. Listener discretion again is advised. Here's Frank. Now, I was three-quarters of the way back because I had to take the ramp and drop the ramp. So I was three-quarters of the way back. So I had some protection because the kids that were in front of me, the troops that were in front of me, they absorbed the bullets that were supposed to hit me. And they were, they were falling down. And there was two kids, stragglers, I call them stragglers, they kept back because they didn't want to be in the front of the boat because they knew they would die. So they stayed back, and they stayed near me, which is a bad thing because besides the machine guns on the beach, there was a machine gun in the hill, and they were shooting down from the hill. So that was in a crossfire. And these two boys, since they stayed close to me, they were drawing fire to me. Now, the first boy was about four feet away from me. He got machine gun in his stomach. His stomach was taken out of his. Luckily, that kid, somehow, he survived the war, even though his stomach was ripped open. The second kid, he was about two, two feet away from me. He wasn't so lucky. The machine gun took his helmet off and part of his skull. And he was crying, help me, help me, help me. And he fell on my feet. And I couldn't help him. I had no morphine. I had nothing to help him. So the only thing I could do, I started praying for him. Our Father who art in heaven. And I never finished the prayer. And it seemed to soothe him. He stopped, he stopped screaming, help me, help me, when I said the prayer. Then I reached down, and I, I touched his hand. I touched his hand because I wanted him to know he wasn't alone. What little strength that he had, he put his fingers around my thumb, 
and squeeze my thumb. It was almost as if he was saying, it's all right, it's all right. But I knew he was going to die. And at that moment, he spit up blood, and he died. He died. He was a kid, probably 18, 19, 20 years old. He had red hair. He died right in front of me. And I, I went into shock, I'll be honest, I went into shock. He was just a little boy. Just a little boy. I went into shock and I passed out. And I, I came to, I don't know, maybe a minute, two minutes, I don't know how long it was. And, and when I passed out, when I came to rather, the coxswain was yelling, pick the ramp up, let's get out of here, because we were in a crossfire. And I pulled the lever and nothing happened. I pulled it the second time, nothing happened. I pulled it the third time, then I put it on automatic. It never came up. So my job now was to take that ramp. Every, everybody was depending upon me. So I had to get to the ramp. I was three quarters of the way back. I couldn't even see the ramp because there were dead bodies in front of me. So I had to crawl over the dead bodies. And I must have been a madman because I was crying. And I'm saying to these kids that are dead, forgive me for, for walking over you. And I started going towards the ramp and somehow another kid came along. I don't, to this day, I don't know who it is, either a crewman or maybe another soldier, I don't know. And we started crawling towards the ramp. And when we got towards the ramp, I realized why the ramp wouldn't come up. There was two dead soldiers on the ramp. They never got out of the boat. So they were waterlogged because they were on the ramp. Plus they had 90 pounds of, each soldier had 90 pounds of equipment on their back. There was no way I was going to move these, this guy. I weighed 125 pounds. I couldn't lift him up. So what I did, I pointed to his belt, to the other guy, and I grabbed the belt, and I started pulling. And when I pulled, he moved about two or three inches. And right then and there, I knew I could do this. I could do this. So I, little by little, by little, probably took 40 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know. I got him off the ramp, and the ramp went up. Now the coxswain had to get the boat. There was all obstacles in the water. There was mines in the water. And we were right in the middle of them. And there was telephone poles. And the top of the telephone poles was the mine. Just sitting there, it wasn't, it wasn't nailed down or screwed down. It was just sitting on top of the telephone pole. If your boat nudged that telephone pole, the mine would come in your boat, killing everybody. Now, these were not an ordinary mine. These were telemines. A telemine, when they explode, they don't explode up. They explode sideways, take a man's legs off. So the coxswain, God bless him, he was so good. 
he got us he got us out of this mess. And we headed back towards my ship. And we had a lot of boys that were wounded pretty bad, and they were crying, Mama, Mama, Mama. And when we headed towards my ship, we, we saw this big white ship with a red cross on the side. It was a hospital ship. So instead of going towards my ship, we went towards the hospital ship because we figured if we can get some of these wounded guys aboard that hospital ship, maybe we could save some lives. If we could save one life, it was worth it. So we pulled alongside the hospital ship, and two angels jumped in my boat. I called them angels because they did something we couldn't do. We were spent. We couldn't do anything. And what they did, they peeled off the dead soldiers to get to the wounded soldiers. And they were able to get about seven. I don't remember exactly. Could have been seven, could have been eight, I don't know. And they, they got these wounded boys, and they put them in the hospital ship. And I said to myself, I said, thank God, these kids stand a chance. Maybe they're going to live this day. And with that, the two guys that were on the boat went back to the hospital ship, and we went back to my ship. When we got back to my ship, we still had wounded aboard. Not serious, but we had wounded aboard. And we had dead aboard the boat. And so when we got close to my boat, they dropped a sled so we could put the dead bodies and the wounded. And then the crane took them up. And somebody yelled, I want one man from every boat to come aboard to be interrogated. So I got on the sled and I went aboard. When I went aboard, I'm on the ship. Stay with me a minute. Stay with me. I'm alive. I'm alive. And I got to make a decision. Do I stay aboard the ship and let somebody take my place? Or do I go back into into the belly of the beast and face those machine guns again? And I said to myself, this is what I was trained to do. And I made 15 trips. They, they told me I didn't know that. They told me we made 15 trips with my boat. The PA 2628 made 15 trips. Do I stay on the boat and let someone else take my place, or do I go back into the belly of the beast? And my goodness, that, that we had young men do this for us, for the world. It's just remarkable when we come back. More of Frank DeVita's story, his recollection of Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. Here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Frank DeVita's story. By the way, if you have stories of loved ones or your own of any service in the war, any American war, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. This is why we're here and why we do what we do. So you can hear ordinary Americans' voices with us not getting in the way. And with that, let's return to Frank and his story. When we left off, his unit had taken a large number of casualties. After realizing the unit was caught in a crossfire, they were able to retreat and find a Red Cross hospital ship to help those who survived the attack. Let's continue. So then I had to be interrogated. It was a, a, a naval officer and a sergeant. He had a lot of stripes on him, great big sergeant. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, son, that hand was like a hug. I needed a hug. And he touched me. And he says, son, he says, those machines can only fire so long. Then they have to change the barrel. You wait. And when they're changing the barrel, that's when you drop the ramp again. So I said, all right. I said, how much time do I have? He said, seven to ten seconds. That's not much time. But I did like he told me. And I waited and I waited. And while I was waiting, the troops aboard the boat started screaming, let the ramp down, we got to get out of here. They felt closed and they wanted to go out and be killed. <sighs> so... I waited and I waited and I waited and all of a sudden there was a lull. They had to drop, change the barrels and I dropped the ramp and this time I got eight guys on the beach. Of course, they were cut down immediately. I'd rather not go any further. For 70 years, I never mentioned it. My family, when we were on the beach with Tom Brokaw, and Tom Broker says to me, he says, I understand you have a big book with all pictures of the battles that you fought. And my son said, what book? I never told anybody anything. It was too hard to talk about. So somehow, Tom Broker, he got it out of me. He asked me a few questions. And once the genie was out of the bottle, you can't put it back. And then after that, I wanted to talk about it. And I go to seminars, I go to Columbine High School, and I talk to these young kids. I went to the USAA, the insurance company, and I talked to them. I wanted to get out now so they don't forget what we had to go through. We fought for peace. The Germans fought to kill, and we fought for peace. You know, we have a tendency in, in this country to put the young generation down. We got a great generation coming up. These, these kids are great. They're, smart. They're much smarter than I was, than all, all of us were. And I love, I love talking to them because they ask very pertinent. One of the kids asked me if I was killed during the war. <laughs> but other than that, they asked some very, very, very good questions. So I could see I'm getting through to them. About uh, three or four months ago, the church that I went to, that I go to, the Monsi, he knew that I was in the war. And he said, Frank, he says, how about talking to the congregation? 
So I said, all right. And the whole church was there. And I gave my spiel like I just told you and stuff like that. And then there was question and answers. And one woman raised, one woman raised her hand and she said to me, why don't you write a book? And I thought about it. But I, I couldn't write it because while I'm writing, the tears will come down on the paper. And I probably have a little blob of paper. So I decided not to write a book. So, but I will talk about it. I want to I get it out there so people don't forget. It's like the Holocaust. We should never forget. We should never forget. I can't understand how a group of educated people, the Germans, these people went to the opera. They took their kids to Sunday school. They went on picnics. These are not Mongolians. These were educated people. How could they do such a thing? How could they do such a thing? I, I, I still cry to this day. Many a nights I'm, I'm in bed, I can't sleep. And I think of that kid with the red hair and the side of his face was shot to the side away. He was a young kid. And I think of that kid. He was only one. There was hundreds around me that died or were wounded. But this one kid touched my heart because he fell to my feet. And he was asking me, help me, help me. I couldn't help him. I couldn't help myself. How could I help him? Well, I'm, I'm going to be 94 in May. So there's not going to be any more Frank DeVitas. So we got to get the word out before we're gone. Because 10 years down the road, there's not going to be any Frank DeVitas or anybody that was in Normandy or Pearl Harbor or what. It's going to be forgotten history. So we shouldn't let it die. And again, that was Frank DeVita, and we will not let it die. And that's what we do here on this show, is preserve these memories and stories of the people and the events that made this country great. We fought for peace. The Germans fought to kill, Frank said. We fought for peace. Seventy years, I've never talked about it. It was hard to talk about it. But I want to get it out there so people never forget. And my goodness, when he was talking about the Germans, how could it happen that a country that produced opera and so many beautiful and remarkable things and so many inventions could do such a thing to other human beings? And by the way, when we think of World War II, we rightly think of the heroism of members of the U.S. Army, Army Air Forces, Navy, and Marine Corps too. But let's not forget about the Americans who served in the Merchant Marines, and as you've been hearing from Frank DeVita, the U.S. Coast Guard. Coast Guardsmen were involved in the war from the start. Half of the Coast Guard's personnel were deployed, manning hundreds of vessels supporting combat operations in every theater, from the Pacific to North Africa and to Europe. Coast Guardsmen escorted vessels across the U-boat-infested waters of the Atlantic and landed soldiers and Marines in amphibious operations, just like the invasion of Normandy. At Normandy, Coast Guardsmen manned transports and rescue craft along the beaches and landing men and vehicles, too. But Coasties also rescued 1,468 men 
who would have otherwise drowned in the surf. They fought and died alongside the men of our other military branches, and we're privileged to bring you one of their voices, U.S. Coast Guardsman and veteran Frank DeVita's story. And if you are a student of World War II or want to bring more people to an understanding of World War II, there's no better way than to just hear the stories from the men themselves. When you bring out the maps and you start to talk about history, it's one thing. And my goodness, no one does this better than the World War II Museum in New Orleans. You get a dog tag and you swipe it, and the next thing you know, you're walking in a soldier's, in a soldier's boots. There's the road to the Pacific, which is just remarkable. And then there's also the road to Berlin. They're two separate museums combined into one. And it's just, well, you just have to get there. And by the way, if you can't get there, there's so much great stuff online. The World War II Museum, just Google it. And it is truly, I think, the very best museum in this country. And by the way, New Orleans is a heck of a city too. So you make it a two or three day family trip and you'll eat some great food, read and see some great history and feel feel the full impact of the stories that they've collected remarkably and beautifully. Again, at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Frank DeVita's story, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun Oles. And I'm Sophia Oles. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now. And it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. 
I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children. It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because you know, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor. Children's Church, ages what? Four to 12. Always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopt a child on there. And then it was just no surprise that this story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day of Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping, and we saw the story on Facebook. These seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms, and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah. And once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do? What can we do? They did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also, our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of 
llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we both have to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church who helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. 
and one's a teacher. Uh, They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story, but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. We'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully they have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too.